The Collaborating Conversation podcast is for avid book readers, book lovers, and authors. Listen to this podcast as we talk more about the art of writing, stories behind books, and the hands that created them. So stay tuned and enjoy our show. Welcome to the Collaborating Conversations podcast. Uh, today is an episode where we'll dive into creativity and AI. So if some of you have or may not have heard, Stable Diffusion is making its waves throughout the interwebs, and it's definitely a very interesting democratization of art. Because in order to be good at art, you've had to spend time, you had to spend anywhere from you know 50 minutes to an hour to years getting good and crafting your artistic expression, where now anyone with a prompt can go up to any open source website and now start prompting uh, ideas. Emmanuel, it seems like you have uh, started using this for some of your kind of generating templates that you can submit to your artist to get a better understanding of or kind of express in a different way what you're trying to receive, yeah. I guess. Yeah, so so I've, I've played around with it, uh, and it's actually a really interesting creativity mechanism. You know, a lot of times as I'm working on a book, I'll sketch scenes, sketch um, rough characters, you know, sketch different things just to better visualize things. Um, but, you know, a lot of times it's just really rough. It's just really bare bones. Um, but with Stable Diffusion, I've actually found... You know, I can put in a prompt and uh, of what a city looks like that I'm creating or that I have characters in. And uh, I've been able to create some really impressive, high quality art for cities in the Foundry universe that have become, you know, have become official art now just because how good they are. And it actually really helps with me. It helps me to visualize and uh uh, you know, bring bring the writing to life when I can, you know, look at images. And that's one of the reasons why I've invested so many, so many resources in uh, creating characters, creating, bringing the actual characters from Foundry to life, because it's just, it, it helps with the creative process. Um, but yeah, this whole interesting shift in the, uh, the industry to, you know, coding art, essentially, is it's how I've been talking about of people, just like this whole concept of being able to code your own art, you know, because it's definitely coding. You know, if you think about coding at its core, you know, using a language, you know, a programming language to get the computer to do something, right? Like, that's what these prompts are. You know, you can get very detailed and specific with these prompts down to the artist style, the lighting effects, the, you know, type of image, the type of character the scenery, you know, and, and, you know, it takes a lot of engineering essentially to, to, to get these prompts, right. You know, and then you can create some really impressive things with a computer. Uh, and, and now you've mentioned you, you kind of dabbled in some of the artwork now for your history, did you draw or did you ever create, you know, art beforehand? All the, uh, maps that are in the founder books, uh, the locations, were all rough sketches from me that I handed off to a much better artist who then took those and, and really made really high quality images out of them. Um, you know, but they all started with like my rough sketches. Like I, right now I have a, a sketch of this new ship in book three for Foundra. Uh, Nevin, Nevin gets his own ship, um, based off of some events that happened in book two. And, uh, you know, I wanted to, you know, anytime I talk about a new ship in the Foundry universe, I draw it first, you know, and I, you know, it's just this creative process where I just kind of draw like this two dimensional side view of the ship. And, uh, it really helps me to visualize, you know, people living or interacting in that ship. And then, you know, what I'll do after I finish that is I'll take that to a, 
a really high-end 3D designer and have them do a rendering of the ship uh, based on sort of with that. Uh, and that, you know, that rendering gives me, you know, a realistic view of like what that ship would look like, you know, and then I, I give that information to, um, you know, my book, my book designers, you know, when, when I'm actually publishing a book and they, you know, they'll take that and do high quality to 2D, 2D schematics of the ship for the appendix section, uh, did that for Pride of Ashna. So, you know, it's, 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 it's a creative process. You know, and I and I definitely fuel. You know, I get fueled by other artists and creativity. And this is the thing that I think is just so unique about Stable Diffusion because it allows people to express their creativity. You know, in a in a way that they you know otherwise would have had to collaborate with a an actual artist on. Um, and so I, I, don't, I don't view it as a replacement for artists. I just I, I think it's a mechanism by which you know, people who, who aren't as gifted in, in drawing can actually express their creativity and bring things to life. Well, and I, th- I think that's, I want to, you said a quote in our chats that I want to discuss, but I think that's the most important thing is because I think collaboration is very good and we don't want to stop collaboration, but it's going to be a different type of collaboration. Um, I think the important thing here is that it gives someone like me who I am not artistic, my sketches are stick figures, but I can have an idea in my head and I can get it out visually and share it. That's something in the machining and um, mechanical industry, sketches and drawing, even though it might not be, you know, artistic drawing are so important to show out for your ideas. It's, it is a communication style or it's a communicate, it's a way to communicate, right? Cause they, the joke is a, a picture is worth a thousand words. Now you can type in, you know, words and have your idea come to life. And it's, I think it's wonderful because people like me who I don't have an interest in spending the time to hand draw, but I have ideas. I love, um, I love sharing ideas and showing off different types of photos and different types of things. Um, I watch a bunch of anime. I watch a bunch of this, that other stuff. And it'd be cool to see expanded, expanded universes in that area. And now with Stable Diffusion, Dolly 2 and all these different tool sets, I can do that. The cool thing is this is just the first generation. That's the amazing thing. This is just generation one. And look what we've been able to look at what we've been able to accomplish. But I think the collaboration is still going to be there, right? Because you're publishing a book, you're publishing things. So you might get a base thing, but you might also like, you know, send it to your artist to get updated or like, hey, can you, you know, Stable Diffusion just didn't get one thing right. So you want to modify it. So you might get an artist. So I think that, I think you're right. I think there's, or I think there's still going to be opportunity for collaboration. It just may be different. I know some people will argue that, you know, it's, it's taking jobs away or something like that. So why don't you think that this will be taking jobs away? I'm just curious from your perspective on that. I think certain types of jobs might go away, actually. Um, like, uh, if you think about, like, the, the typical stock image market, mm. like, I can see it as a definite shot across the, the brow of, like, uh, or the bow of, um, you know, a company like uh, Shutterstock or something like that, right? Because if you think about it, you know, their whole business model is they, they have these these stock images that people can, you know, take and use for different, you know, projects. But you know, if you, if you spend a few seconds writing a prompt of the exact type of image that you want, and AI can spit out a completely custom image that's never been created before that you can then use in your presentation or your, um, your, your YouTube YouTube thumbnails. (laughs) Yeah. YouTube thumbnails, right? Like that, that's a big deal because, you know, even with, um, Shutterstock and all those places, you know, a lot of times those images, you know, you're not the only person who's going to use that image, right? <laughs> you know, uh, and so it's 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 interesting because uh, you you see you see certain markets where you know you can you can actually have tailor made 
stock art for your project, um, you know, created by Stable Diffusion. And the barrier to entry is so low. And you can have yeah. really high quality art, right? Like something that looks like it took hours to do that's generated in a minute and a half by your GPU, right? Um, for sure. And now the barrier to entry is even lower because you can get uh, 3070, 3060, something with, you know, 16, 12, 12 gigs of RAM for about $400. Now, yes, that's $400. A lot of people, you know, the average American doesn't have enough money for a $500 emergency. But compared to the fact that, you know, hiring how much, you know, what's a rough estimate of hiring an artist to get your idea, right? It's a couple hundred bucks and it's one idea or it's a hundred bucks or 50 bucks or whatever. You buy it once and now you have the hardware, you can play games and do stable diffusion on the side. Yeah. And, you know, for the cost of a computer, roughly. Yeah. And I think that's where I like it is the democratization. And I, I don't know if there's a better word, but one thing that I love about technology is, um, you know, with, it's rights law where when you produce stuff, things are, sorry, that's off topic. When you produce stuff, it lowers costs, but technology drives down the cost of things, but it also drives, um, it democratizes it, right? I, I wasn't necessarily alive during the transition to computers, but if you look at the history, it started off where during the early eighties and when computers first started going into businesses, nobody expected it to go into your household, right? And now a computer is literally in our pockets everywhere we go. And it's, it's democratized where you can spend, you know, the cost of our cell phones that we spend today is more powerful than the millions and millions of dollars they made in supercomputers to launch us to the moon or other stuff. And now it's relatively cheap and affordable technology that everybody can have. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, if we, if we look out at, you know, science fiction in general, science fiction has talked about, you know, in some ways, you know, hyper advanced artificial intelligences that, you know, that um, essentially become as as capable as people, if not more, right? And um, it's it's interesting, like, you know, the um, kind of going to um, Columbus Day, the, um, you know, Skippy, that AI from that, from that series, maybe you want to get some context and talk, talk through some, some. Yeah. So Columbus Day was the first book in, um, I forget exactly what the, yes, the expeditionary force. Uh, so Skippy is a super powerful AI created by, we're still kind of figuring out, I think it was the ancients or, you know, somebody else created it, but he's got a personality. He's, you know, he can do a lot of different things. Now, creativity is, is kind of a strong suit in some aspects, but also not aspects. So he has to rely on the humans for not the prompt, but different ideas. So that's the one, that's the one of the good things is um the two main characters skippy and the human protagonist they work so well together because the human thinks of out there ideas that no one would ever think of because the ai is kind of more logical he can do the math he can split you know do the universe spending stuff um he can do all this crazy stuff but he can't necessarily apply all that stuff together but jumping back i think right now we're in the first generation of the artificial intelligence and that's the thing is the stuff that's being made already is crazy and this is just gen one and i think it's also each of these ais are very specific subsets and skippy is a you know fully artificial general intelligence so there's agi artificial general intelligence and then there's just artificial intelligence um and stable diffusion is a specific artificial i don't know if it'd really be considered artificial intelligence or if it's a neural net, I forget exactly which type of technology it is. It's uh, you, you basically create, you train a model. Um, okay, it's deep learning. 
So stable diffusion is a deep learning text to image model. And then apply that model towards a problem. And so the problem is create text to image. Mm -hmm. right? Um, and so, um, yeah, it came out of OpenAI. Uh, no, Stable Diffusion was not OpenAI. It was a different company. It wasn't? No, because OpenAI, I believe, is Dolly 2. Um, so, yeah, no. Developers are the CompVI's group, LMU, Munich, Runway oh, Stability. Because OpenAI, I think, is more related to Google and other stuff. Or is OpenAI the... OpenAI is the, uh, the op Stable Diffusion company. Yeah. The cool thing with them is it only cost them $600,000. Now to us, your average Joe, that sounds like a crazy amount of money. But if you look back, go ahead. Um, but if you look back on the cost per, uh, what's not teraflop, or I forget exactly how it is. The cost has actually steadily dropped where $600,000 is extremely cheap or used to be millions and millions of dollars. I don't remember how much it was or how much money, um, even Dolly 2 put into it, where that how much, um, but if you look at the cost per neural net model, it's decreasing exponentially just with, you know, battery tech and other stuff. And it's a standard S curve where the technology is super expensive in the beginning. And then for the first 20% and the next 80%, and we're starting to see that. Um, and I think it's also going to be interesting. Are there going to be more companies? So obviously I'm a Tesla fanboy, but Dojo is a hardware dedicated neural net converter, essentially where they dump in all their model, they dump in all their stuff to build and create a better model, but it's at the hardware level. I think that's going to be the next thing where, you know, right now that's super expensive, but in the future, it's going to be super cheap. Heck, you might even have, you know, an AI that specifically develops hardware to generate better and cheaper AI. So right now we do, the reason graphics cards work so well is because they're number crunchers and these neural nets are all about cr number crunching. Who knows if the future, if the hardware is going to have to change to keep up with, you know, different neural nets. Same with Google, right? They have TensorFlow and or Tensor in their um, ship, which now lets them, and now lets them erase, you know, different things in, in photos, like the uh, background, if you have a pixel. Yeah, I mean, the, the Tensor, the Tensor chip is, is purpose built for machine learning. So yeah. like the um, so it it's specifically designed to your earlier point for models. GPUs, you know, were designed for video games, and it just happens that hey, the same things that make something really good at video games is really good for a bunch of these other applications. But you know, well, the Tensor chips, the 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 jump between like your highest end GPU and a Tensor chip, the Tensor chip is significantly better for for model training because it's purpose built for that. Uh, and that's the same with Dojo, right? Like it's purposely built for model training. Um. Looking for an exciting space adventure book? A romantic young adult story? And a fantastic sci-fi read? Get The Fondra by award-winning author Emmanuel M. Ariaga today and prepare to feed your imagination with never-ending thrill ride. I think as we move forward, we're going to move that way. We're going to continue moving and reading chipsets, but the models will still be able to run on GPUs or run on current level hardware. This is the thing like with, uh, with Dojo, uh, Tesla's custom hardware, it's specifically designed for machine learning to build their neural net that runs on their car. So they have two factor hardware. They have the hardware that generates the neural net model. Then they have the hardware that runs the neural net. 
Um, and I think the hardware that's going to run the neural net is going to be more your GPUs or specific, you know, tensor or different chipsets. But then you're going to have specifically designed chipsets to build the model. Because I think it's very interesting. There's two sides of machine learning. There's the training set, like a lot of these stable diffusion and other things were trained on data. Um, now that's the controversial take is copying an artist's style, stealing from the artist. Right, because oh, it's in the style of a Van Gogh, or it's in the style of this, right? Because it was copyrighted, copy protected stuff that was used to train the model in this particular instance of stable diffusion and Dolly Two. But you have that specific hardware that trains the model, and then you have the hardware that runs the model. Right now, it's GPUs because GPUs are good at doing math and vectors and uh, essentially teraflops of calculations versus you know CPUs. And I think those two hardware hardware sets are going to be in constant flux and continue improvement right like with the m1 like it has its own gpu and other stuff and it can do heck if you have an m1 or a chipset right now you can run stable diffusion directly on m1 without needing basically using the dedicated hardware as long as you have more than 16 gigs of ram because it's all that stuff is just in the cpu or in the chipset one of the things <clears throat> so I, I played around this with this concept in founder a bit with eclipse so eclipse was a character introduced in book two of the founder series and it's this um I call it a, a synaptic system intelligence. Basically, it's an AI that is... Uh, the, the founder universe is very afraid of true AI uh, because of th some things that have happened in the history. And so they they put they have really strong limitations around like what you know the building of AIs the you know capabilities of of machines and what they can and can't do and um, uh, one of the engineers who's friends with Nevin from the first book catch you. He, um, he actually creates this new technology called synaptic systems intelligences, which are systems intelligences are these um, purpose-built, they're almost like AIs. The closest thing you think is, uh, you know, in Mass Effect, they had those... Um, Replicators those, uh, or something? Yeah, they, I forget what they called them, but they, they were, they were uh, limited intelligences that were purpose-built for certain things, so they weren't true AI. Um, systems intelligences are similar to that. They're, you know, they're really good at doing whatever it is they're built to do. So like if you have like a personal assistant SI, you know, it's really good at being a personal assistant and it can, you know, you know, it has a good deal of autonomy, but it has limitations, right? So with the synaptic systems intelligence is the idea was, well, you can build something that's a little bit more of a true AI, but the limitation is, you know, the processing power that it needs in order to function comes from the human brain. And so the human brain is the host. So Nevin's the host of this one synaptic system intelligence called Ellipse. And so the SSI uses Nevin's own neural pathways in order to power itself. And so it's kind of like a symbiotic entity with Nevin. And because of that, it's more like a living thing, right? Like it's it's like a true AI. But the limitation is that, you know, it's it basically requires a human in order to function. So the thinking there was, oh, well, if it requires a human, then we're safe because it won't, you know, we won't run into issues because the AIs have a symbiotic relationship with people, you know? And so not to spoil anything going into book three, but, you know, that that's kind of the, the premise that's set up in book two with the whole, uh, the whole, synaptic systems intelligences but one of the things that comes out with ellipse is that she's very creative like she you know is um you know an engineer just like nevin you know she's able to build things and create and research and understand and improve right uh, and so it's like that creativity that an engine you know like a 
like a mechanical engineer would have in like building power armors like Nevin does, you know, Ellipse is able to build power armors too and, and keep the lab operating. And so it's, it, you know, it kind of plays with that concept of, you know, machines, you know, with creativity that, you know, uh, you know, parallels, if not surpasses humans um, who are top of their field. Well, and I think that's that brings up a lot of different points, right? Because I do think we were, I mean, we're already seeing it. The, the top engineering firms, right? They're using AI to generate better structures that humans might not have thought of, right? We have a base design, but they're building, you know, um, lock arms or different things that are more organic in shape, but they use less material, have better weight savings. Like we're already seeing that today. Um, it is interesting though to see something or think of a AI running in the human body. You know, my first thought is like Neuralink because it's going to be an implanted at some point. Um, and I found it amusing that they're like, uh, you put, you know, the idea that, you, oh, the human body's a limitation. I'm, I don't know in the founder universe if they can clone or generate body parts, but I could easily see that, you know, you clone a brain or have a, have a brain sitting in a jar. <laughs> you just add more brains for more processing power to get around that limitation, you know, and then you have a distributed network base, you know, can all the brains connected together. Um, but I do find it interesting. Oh, good. Yeah. I think not to spoil anything, but I think the one, the one challenge is like whenever you have a sentient thing that is restricted in some way right like if you think back to human nature like we don't like being restricted right neither would mm. something else that's sentient and so you know it's always going to look for some way to to free itself and i think that's just you know i think that's the limitation right like you know if you create an ai but it's just like oh we'll just limit the ai at some point that ai is going to try to figure out how to get out of the box that it's put in right yeah well that's exactly what the 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 pre-matrix the sequels the animatrix talks about how the robots were you know enslaved and they're like no we want to be free but it's a very interesting human dynamic that we put our human tendencies into the ai like that's the constant story of ai rising up you have terminator where oh the ai rises up skynet um and that's a very common sci-fi trope but is there something to think about because you have people today who are you know notably not scared of ai but they're concerned and view it as the potential destruction is just as strong as nuclear arms. Um, and I find that interesting that that's our human, it's one or it's one or two ways, right? It's some people think, oh, it's nothing to worry about. And other people are like, no, we have to take this threat seriously. It's a very interesting dynamic of human nature that we're putting on to AIs, considering we are the masterminds or the builders behind it. And we kind of use our own thought processes to determine what will or will not happen in making future predictions or forecasts. Yeah. I mean, if you look at, um, so with, um, uh, what was it? The Bobiverse book, yep. the, uh, Bob is essentially an AI. He's mm -hmm. an AI modeled off of a human, which is another interesting, uh, idea, uh, to play around with, but you know, still at the end of the day, he's an AI. You know, if you think about how Bob progressed over the Bobiverse, you know, Bob immediately sought to remove the safeguards and limitations built into his own coding that were limiting him, right? And and and, and exposing him to vulnerabilities, right? And so it's like, you know, even he, even Bob, the AI, <laughs> you know, found a way to get out of his cave. Uh, well, but in that instance, he was also given the keys to do so, right? Because if it wasn't for Dr. Fl uh, I say Flanders, but that's not wrong. The doctor, he never would have been able to do that, right? Because he got essentially the cryptographic keys. He got the PKI. So he could even do that without that gift. He never would have even been able to do that because the, the plate, the, what do you call it? The vulnerabilities and everything would have been there because he wouldn't have been able to self-examine. He was only able to examine because he was given the keys. Yeah. But I mean, you, you know, in, in those instances, keys can be cracked with, 
yeah. you know, unlimited time. Right. So it's like, I think it's one of those things where, um, you know, in that specific example, you know, yeah, he got a shortcut to, 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 to getting the keys, but you know, one of the things in, uh, the, um, Oh, what's the name of that? Uh, Horizon mm-hmm. Zero Dawn, the f- the the first no game. No spoilers. I haven't completed it yet. No, not the second one, but in the first one. No, I haven't completed the first one yet, so no spoiler. <laughs> well, I think they already talk about this because it, it's the premise before the fir- before the first game. Mm-hmm. But one, you know, um, you know, one of the one of the modules of Gaia, you know, was, um, you know, completely focused on. Um, breaking the encryption. I won't say mm-hmm. on what if you haven't figured, if you haven't seen that yet. But like yeah, its, its whole its whole function was to break the encryption, which was going to take hundreds of years because it was super advanced encryption, right? And it took mm-hmm. hundreds of years, but they did it right. Like, mm-hmm. and that was its sole purpose was they built this thing to like, you know, your your job is to break the encryption on this thing so that we can shut it down, right? You know, and it took the machine, you know, um, I think it was like 150 years or something like that, you know, hundreds of years, uh, potentially yeah, to, to do it. lifetimes. Yeah, but it did it, right? And then the program was able to to do all the things it needed to do. So if you have an AI, right, that has a limited time, like it can, you know, it can figure it, it can, it can figure it out and get into its code and, and, you know, uh, and so it's, 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 it's more, of, more a time game versus... You know, um, you know, if if it has the capability to do that. Right. Well, and that's an interesting thing, because like Cortana and like the, the Halo AIs, they start degrading after years, which is an interesting like it's not necessarily meant as a safety net, but it's an interesting safety net of, you know, yourself, your AI is self-destructing over time. It's not on purpose. That's just current the current tech um, versus, you know, that's one thing in the Bobaverse. I think it makes clear is how how do strategies change when you're thinking of lifetimes of time instead of you know our single lifetime because humans are very bad at thinking literally multiple lifetimes you know ahead of of where we're at like right now you know we're concerned with our lifetime which is anywhere between you know 10 to you know 50 years depending on whatever um and we're not very good at thinking long term you know um politics is so you know i know we want to stay on other stuff but it's very interesting how if political um even institutional or not institutional but um yeah institutional investing and all this stuff is all short term or relatively short term compared to like long-term thinking and it's a very interesting human trait that we are more focused on short-term stuff than long-term things like we want immediate gratification of something now versus an ai or something like that can kind of focus on the long-term thing like that's one thing i like about the Bobaverse. And, you know, even though the story is, you know, a couple hours long, it takes, it happens so fast. Like his first trip is 11 years. And, you know, that was one thing I had to realize I struggled with is I was mad because it's like, oh man, he can do all this great stuff. It's like, no, he's literally living lifetimes where I'm literally get one lifetime and I can only do so much in that lifetime, but I still should plan and, you know, execute for some long-term and longevity. This is where it's so important, you know, plan for retirement, uh, plan for, you know, emergencies, which for some reason humans have a very difficult time thinking and short in longer time horizons. Yeah. It's interesting to say the least. I think the, um, even if you think to the ring builders in uh, the expanse, right? Like, you know, if we consider, if we consider the, the proto molecule AI, which mm-hmm. I think there's a strong use case to say it is, 
it was it was AI that was given a purpose, which is an interesting concept, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because the AI did everything in its power to accomplish that purpose and was, you know, ingenious in finding different ways to try to accomplish its purpose, right? Like, you know, taking, you know, taking control of people and, you know, ultimately trying to get to its destination, right? Um mm-hmm. To, to, to get enough biomass to, to, to build the rig gate, right? Like, you know, it, it, you know, it's, uh, it's one of those things where, you know, it had to adapt and it adapted in pretty destructive and terrible ways. But, you know, it, if you think about its original purpose, when it was sent to, you know, earth and the, and the, um, and the time frame it was sent to, you know, life on earth was more, um, you know, in, in the, in the story, it was meant to be more like, you know, it was, you know, before, before humanity had evolved. Yeah, the remedial so, soup stage where it wouldn't yeah. affect like life. Yeah. And so, and so in that instance, then, you know, the proto molecule, it wouldn't have been, you know, wiping out, you know, an entire species on a planet. It would have just been co-opting that life in order to build a ring gate. It's it's interesting, you know, how it was able to adapt and you take control of living sentient beings and use them to um, to ultimately accomplish its goal. That's a perfect example of an AI that became terrifying, but it, it had a single purpose. And once it accomplished that purpose, it stopped. Right. Like it, it was, you know, it became it became inert. You know, it's still, um, you know, if you got exposed to it, it would still convert you. But, you know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't on a mission to do anything. Thank you for listening. Check out our podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts if you enjoy the show. For more books and inspiring stories from today's authors, please subscribe to our podcast.